Welcome to No Nonsense Catholic. I'm your host, Matthew Arnold, for Virgin Most Powerful Radio. And the confusion stops here. The confusion stops here. Good to have you along with us, No Nonsense Catholic. I'm uh, going to be talking today about a number of things. What happens to worship when it ceases to be centered on God and becomes anthropocentric, that is to say, man-centered. What's wrong with man-centered worship? What is the uh, danger of taking the focus off off of God and putting it onto the congregation? We're going to talk about that. We're also going to be talking about uh, what I call communion wars. We have a a number of people uh, in my life over the years that have uh, cast the Catholic Church as being um, kind of mean-spirited or selfish and so forth by denying non-Catholics from communion, by denying them communion, by saying the non-Catholic cannot receive communion in a Catholic church. And why is that? So we're going to talk about that also later on in the program. But uh, to begin with, I was talking to a fellow over the weekend on uh, on Sunday, in fact, at church, who was a listener to the program, and he told me that he misses Happy Hour, my my previous Friday program, uh, because I had a habit of going over the upcoming readings for the uh, Sunday Mass in the Extraordinary Form. Now, I did that because uh, well, for a number of reasons, uh, primarily because the Sunday readings and the traditional Mass, uh, really every year they represent in a compendium of the entire Catholic faith, and, and it repeats each year, and I think that repetition is the mother of learning, but I figured, well, I did my year's worth, and so I've done my duty. But he he brought it up to me, and actually, I wanted to talk about the readings that are upcoming this Sunday, because or the gospel, because I think it's important, and it ties into uh, both of our topics today. So it is from the gospel of Mark, chapter 8, verses 1 through 9. At that time, when there was a great multitude with Jesus, and they had nothing to eat, calling his disciples together, he saith to them, I have compassion on the multitude. For behold, they have now been with me three days and have nothing to eat. And if I shall send them away fasting to their home, they will faint in the way. For some of them came from afar off. And his disciples answered him, From whence can anyone fill them here with bread in the wilderness? And he asked them, How many loaves have you? Who said, Seven. And he commanded the multitude to sit down upon the ground, and taking the seven loaves, giving thanks, he broke and gave to his disciples for to set before them. And they set them before the people. And they had a few little fishes, and he blessed them, and commanded them to be set before them. And they did eat and were filled. And they took up that which was left of the fragments, seven baskets. And they that had eaten were about four thousand. And he sent them away. Thus far the words of the Holy Gospel. This is from Mark's Gospel, the feeding of the 4,000, not to be confused with the feeding of the 5,000, a.k.a. the miraculous multiplication of the loaves and fishes. Both these episodes, the feeding of the 4,000 and the feeding of the 5,000, uh, are present in the same Gospel of Mark, and they, um, they teach some things in common, and we'll start there. So, for example, why did Jesus say, I have compassion on the multitude? Well, he's confirming, as always, teaching by example what he had said um, in the words of Matthew 6.33, which is, Seek first the kingdom of God and his justice, and all these things, that is, you know, the things that are necessary for the body, will be added unto you. So the multitude wasn't, uh, according to the gospel, they weren't concerned about food. They hadn't asked him to feed them, and yet it was his care for them and his compassion he provided for them. He fed the multitude that followed him with food for their bodies as he had fed them with food for their souls. And because they were eager to hear his word, they forgot to supply themselves with uh, enough food to, to last the three days, and so he, apl- he supplied it for them by this wonderful miracle. St. Augustine talks about the miracle of the loaves and fishes. He says it shows our Lord's omnipotence, and this is an important point and one that's easily glossed over. St. Augustine said, Jesus multiplied the bread in his hands by virtue of the same power wherewith God multiplies a few grains of corn into a waving cornfield. By the way, when St. Augustine, uh, you know, this is uh, an old English translation of Augustine's words, and in 
Old English, corn just is a generic word for grain. They're not talking about like the ears of corn that grow in the United States, but any kind of grain generically, so wheat or barley or rye, whatever. Uh, that's grains of corn. He said, so the five loaves were like unto those grains of corn, which when sown do not lie unfruitful in the ground, but to which increase is immediately given by him who is the creator of the world. So in other words, the miraculous uh, multiplication of the loaves demonstrates the, the creative power and the omnipotence of our Lord as second person of the Blessed Trinity, because it is the Trinity, it's God, who every year multiplies the grains of corn that are sown in the earth. And this is a wonderful miracle. You know, the, the annual multiplication of, of food, right? And, and the miracle of the loaves reminds us how every year God gives increase to the seed that we sow in the ground. Right, ten grains of wheat can become uh, one or two or, or, or four hundred grains. Uh, one small potato can produce ten or twenty other potatoes when it's planted in the ground. And the thing is, when we think about it, who was it? We say this is the, this is nature, but but who is the author of nature? Who was it that, that gave the seed the power of germinating in the ground and growing up and bearing fruit? Who sends the sunshine and the dew and the rain? And, and puts the nutrients in the soil, all of which are so necessary. I, sometimes I think we're divorced from this idea because of these modern techniques. We think we're responsible for bringing these things from the ground. But it's God. And the annual increase of food is a work of his omnipotence. But we don't call it a miracle because it happens, as I said, through what we call the course of nature. And we're so accustomed to it that it doesn't make any impression on us. But again, going back to St. Augustine, he says the wonderful way in which God governs the world and provides for all his creatures makes no impression upon us. His marvels are so constantly occurring that we scarcely observe them. We scarcely observe his wonderful action in every little grain of corn. It is on this account that sometimes in his mercy, God performs wonders out of the course of nature so that men may realize the marvel, not because it's greater than what is constantly occurring, but only more unusual, since the everyday wonders make no impression on us. The government of creation is really a greater marvel than the feeding of the 5,000 with five loaves. But whereas no one marvels at the one, all men are astounded at the other, not because it was greater, but because it was more unusual. And so there it is, the, the, uh, the fact that we you know plant seeds in the ground that, that every seed has all the information in it you know that you take an apple seed and you plant it in the ground and a tree grows from that and from the tree the leaves and the leaves and the flower and the flower and the fruit and the fruit's got another seed inside of it that can start the process all over again that we have god to thank uh also we can see uh, there's a number of things uh common to both uh, accounts of the feeding of the five thousand and the four thousand like uh that he blesses the food before he eats and that's why we have the the uh, why we say grace before meals. Remember to ask God's blessing and then afterwards to give him thanks. Um, that we shouldn't be wasteful, right? He says, gather up the fragments lest they be lost. And it's wrong to allow the gifts of God to be wasted. So if we have leftover food, it should be given ideally to the poor. And if not to the poor, then to, to animals. And if not to them, then to make compost, to, uh, to put in the ground to nourish the soil for the next round of, of uh, you know, crops. But really the important aspect of this, the most important aspect of these events is the foreshadowing of the Holy Eucharist through which our Savior, you know, through the hands of his priests, he gives his very own body and blood. He nourishes uh, people around the world, countless millions, nearly, or I guess a little over a billion souls around the world. And so, Beside the, the common object of all of our Lord's miracles, which is to show forth his omnipotence and increase our faith in him, this miracle has that special object of foreshadowing the Holy Eucharist, preparing us for the, the super substantial bread, the Holy Sacrament of the altar, that he promises the next day at the synagogue in Capernaum. That's one of those things that, that really fries me about uh, some priests and, and even I, uh, the current occupant of the See of Peter is guilty of uh, talking about the, the multiplication of loaves and fishes as though it was a miracle of sharing, that, that Jesus didn't miraculously multiply the loaves, but that people were just moved to share their lunch. And the real miracle was that Jesus got people to share. 
But that doesn't make sense when you, you know, continue the story. The next day he goes to the synagogue of Capernaum and the crowd follows him there because they want him to repeat the miracle. Give us this bread always. And he tells them, no, the, the true bread, he, that he uses that opportunity to tell them what the miracle was for, to foreshadow the Holy Eucharist. Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no life in you. My, you know, uh, body is flesh indeed. My, my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him on the last day. I am the bread that came down from heaven, etc. You know, our Lord in the Holy Eucharist feeds the souls of the faithful uh, by distributing his body, blood, soul, and divinity through the hands of the priests. And it's that heavenly food that satisfies because the Eucharist satisfies our spiritual hunger as opposed to just our natural physical hunger. That's what Jesus says uh, in that Eucharistic discourse in John 6, that, you know, Moses gave, or God gave the people the manna in the desert, that bread from heaven, and they ate of the manna, but they died. And he says, but the bread that I will give is my flesh for the life of the world. I am the bread of life, and he who eats this bread will live forever. And you know what? They, they had a hard time with this, and we're going to talk about that uh, uh, later in the next segment. But the feeding of the 5,000, the feeding of 4,000 are two separate miracles. We've talked about what makes them the same, but there's an important distinction between them. And we're going to talk about that when we come back with lots more no-nonsense Catholic right here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Stay with us. We will be right back. Genesis 1.27 says, God created man in his own image. Male and female he created them. According to Pope St. John Twenty-Third, it is not true that some human beings are by nature superior and others inferior. All human beings are equal in their natural dignity. May God help us to look upon everyone as a person created in his image and likeness and treat everyone the same without favoritism or prejudice. This is Terry Barber. I want to thank you for supporting Virgin Most Powerful Radio. And here's an easy way to support us by going to smile.amazon.com and type in Catholic Resource Center or Virgin Most Powerful Radio. And when you log in your Amazon account and you purchase products, a portion of it will go right back in supporting Virgin Most Powerful Radio. And it doesn't cost you a dime. I want to thank you ahead of time because that supports us year-round. May God bless you and your family. Healthcare news today seems to be coming from everywhere and everyone. It's confusing, at least, and untrustworthy at the worst. Dr. Aceta is a faithful Catholic in the Kern County community. He is trustworthy, well-researched, and will only give expert opinion on matters in his own specialty. Catholic teaching at its entirety is of utmost importance to Dr. Aceta. Give Dr. Aceta a call for your obstetrics and gynecological needs at 661-695-6617. This is Terry Barber. I want to thank you for your support here at Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Here's an easy way to do it. If you're going to sell or buy a house, call Real Estate for Life, 877-543-3871, because they're going to get you a Christ-centered agent to purchase your home or to sell your home. And at the close of escrow, a portion of his commission goes right back to Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Call 877-543-3871. Thank you so much for your support. Welcome back, No Nonsense Catholic. Matthew Arnold here for Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Uh, great to have you with us. We're talking about the feeding of the 4,000 and it, the very many similarities that it has with the feeding of the 5,000. And yet, they are two distinct episodes. And they both appear 
in the Gospel of Mark, and how is it that uh, that this should have happened? Well, we've seen a, a lot of similarities between the two, the object of the miracle, faith in Jesus, and, and foreshadowing the Holy Eucharist, and so on. Um, and, and But we're not going to look at the differences, not only the number of people, but the number of baskets that were left over, and so forth. Um, but one of the similarities that always kind of troubled me when I first became Catholic is the disciples themselves. You know, I, and I think we're done in by, uh, you know, TV movies about Jesus and uh, the illustrations in our Bible storybooks and whatnot. You have the feeding of the 5,000 there, there at Lake Galilee. And, you know, Jesus says, or you know, the apostles say to, or the disciples rather, say to Jesus, hey, the, the people don't have any food and, and we need to send them away so they can. And he says, you supply the food. And they say, we don't have enough money to buy food for all these people, right? And then he does the business with the, how many loaves do you have? And he does the miraculous multiplication. Okay. And it's amazing. And it's a great miracle. But now at the feeding of the 4,000, the disciples react in the same way. You know, what, what, what is it that, uh, you know, he says, how, how are we going to feed all this? Where are we going to find bread in, out here in the wilderness? And why would they do that if they had already seen him perform this miraculous multiplication? Well, the answer comes in the distinction between the words disciple and apostle. Like I say, we, we watch, you know, Jesus of Nazareth, and it's Peter and John who are saying, where are we going to get money to buy all this food? Where are we going to get bread for 5,000 people? But the scripture doesn't say it's the apostles. The scripture says the disciples. And while the apostles were certainly disciples, they were chosen from among the disciples. The disciples, uh, you know, is a much larger body of those who follow Jesus, those who walk with him, as the scripture says. And so you're going to have disciples in the various localities. He's going to make disciples in these various places. And so I would suggest to you that not only the crowd uh, at the feeding of the 5,000 there near uh, the Lake of Galilee, but also the disciples were a distinct group from the crowd and the disciples that were uh, uh, there for the miracle of the feeding of the 4,000 in the region of the 10 cities. Okay, so that, that's number one. That's, you know, because it, it seems like there's a, a contradiction there, but there's not. Also, uh, you know, those who were present at the feeding of the 5,000 were primarily Jews. And um, when it was over, they collected 12 baskets of fragments, 12 baskets of leftovers. So one for each of the tribes of Israel. And it's significant that it's 12 baskets because, as you know, at that time, you know, way back during the kingdom or the kingship of David, the kingdom divided. And you had the two tribes in the southern kingdom, Judah and Benjamin. And then you had the 10 tribes who made the northern kingdom of Israel. Now that kingdom dissolved. And they became the quote-unquote lost tribes, not because they wandered off someplace and couldn't find their way back, but they were the lost tribes in the sense that, uh, that they lost their identity, that they fell into uh, paganism through intermarriage and through you know, becoming part of that culture. The Samaritans were the descendants of those, the pagan peoples and the uh, ten tribes of Israel. But Jesus has come for all Israel. That's why St. Paul goes on this in chapters 9 through 11 in the book of Romans. He says that it's through the church, it's through Christ, through Christianity, that all Israel will be saved. Israel, I mean, they didn't refer to themselves that way anymore. But Paul's saying all the descendants of the ten tribes are going to be saved because the Gentiles are going to become Christians. So his primary audience, though, at, at this time is the Jews, and he's making these important points for that Jewish audience. Now, Mark is writing primarily for a Gentile audience. And so he gives us this separate account of the feeding of the 4,000, which happened in the area of the 10 cities. So largely, that crowd is going to be made up of Gentile peoples. And so when they pick up the, the fragments, when they're left over at the end, there's seven baskets, which is representative of um, creation, Right when Adam and Eve were were the entire human race at that point, right? So that seven baskets represents the days of creation. Represents that God is the Creator and the God of everyone, and so that's uh, uh, symbolic of the fact that Jesus is there, not just to save the Jews, but to save everyone. And that would have been very reassuring to Mark's target audience, who were primarily Roman, primarily Gentile. Okay, so there's the, uh, the, the, those two accounts of the miraculous 
multiplication. And it kind of ties into two things we're going to talk about now, because obviously the Eucharist is at the center of Catholic worship, which is where we're going next. You know, in my book, Confessions of a Traditional Catholic, I kind of discuss at length the liturgical movement and the Protestant versus Catholic and how it came into the church and how after Vatican II, we really changed the focus of the Mass from the vertical to the horizontal, from God to the assembly. In fact, it is so-called assembly theology that's largely uh, responsible for the way that we worship now. And, and modern theology, it tends to be overly anthropocentric, man-centered, focused on the human rather than on the divine, right? The, the, the corporal works of mercy versus the spiritual works of mercy, et cetera, et cetera. Now, there was another book came out a number of years ago by a guy named Thomas Day called Why Catholics Can't Sing. And he wrote that today's ordinary form liturgy often comes down to, quote, the aware, gathered community celebrating itself. Uh, Father Zuldorf on his blog, uh, once wrote that uh, modern Catholic worship songs, he says, they go on at great length about how we are gathered, how we are the flock, how we have been sung throughout history, and that we are God's song, and so forth. He says, when God is mentioned, it's more in relation to us, rather than us being in relation to him. He is all about us, and this seems to please us greatly. Now, I don't know if he's overstating the case there, but uh, you know the case can be made. And, and part of the problem, there's a lot of people who really think that in the pre-Vatican II old traditional Latin liturgy, that the people were like an afterthought or, or just spectators, which was not really true, by the way. Um, and, but now the pendulum has swung so far in the other direction that, that the people have become the focus. So if something doesn't speak to the people, it should either be watered down or abandoned. If something makes the people feel uncomfortable, we need to, to censor it and, and to remove it from the prayers and so forth. Now, the general instruction of the Roman Missal tells us, and I've mentioned this before, but I'm going to keep at it until everybody understands. <laughs> the general instruction for the Roman Missal, for the Novus Ordo Missae, tells us that Christ is present at Mass in four ways. He is present, they tell us, in the congregation when we pray or sing. So like wherever two or three are gathered my name, there am I in the midst of them. So when people are, are saying the responses, singing along, God is there, Christ is there. Christ is present also in the word when it is proclaimed. So when the readings are being proclaimed from the ambo or from the pulpit, Christ is present. When um, he's present in his minister, of course, who, who uh, acts in persona Christe at the uh, liturgy of the Eucharist, when, at the consecration. And he is also there, um, especially, of course, in the Holy Eucharist, in the Blessed Sacrament. Now, what we've learned, of course, from the whole COVID-19 business, when those weeks and months where we were denied access to um, Sunday Mass, and people are watching it on the internet and watching it on TV and whatnot, um, we realized that uh, Mass can go on, that the chalice and hosts were being raised around the world and around the clock, just like always. And the one necessary thing, or the one unnecessary thing, was us. That the, the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass continued without the congregation. So maybe we're not quite so important as we think. And, and it's the same thing all throughout the tradition of the Church was always very vertical. I, the apex of Catholic uh, architecture has to be the Gothic, and maybe that's a personal opinion, but I, I love Gothic architecture. And you can see in the grand spires and in the, in the great the verticalness of it that, you know, just as liturgy is meant to draw the heart and the mind to God, that the, the physically we are drawn, the eye is drawn up in, in the Gothic cathedral and Gothic architecture. And of course, it's all covered with what they used to call those medieval cathedrals, they call them sermons in stone because of the statues and the stained glass and, and you know, relief work and so forth, the, the story of the Gospels was, was everywhere to be seen, even to the point that there are, you know, if you, you know, go in a helicopter or perhaps some, some cities now where, where skyscrapers are taller than the old cathedrals, you can look down at the roof of a Gothic cathedral and see statuary there. That is statuary that was placed there that was never going to be seen by people in the Middle Ages, they would never have the vantage point to see those statues up on top. So what are they doing there? 
Well, they're there for, the, for God, for the angels and the saints when they look down. You understand? You see how vertical it all was, how, how, how uh, centered it was on God. And now, you know, our architecture is largely about the comfort of the congregation. You know, we have the seating is like the, that fan-shaped seating, like in a theater. Or even uh, uh, they do it in the round where the, where the altar's right in the center of the room and they're surrounded by the people. I mean, you, you can't get a much better metaphor for things being man-centered than creating a big circle where we're all staring at each other. You know, and even the, the, the theater seating. I remember, um, this is a church that is now defunct, uh, thanks be to God, but uh, it was a Catholic church that, where I attended, and they did a renovation where they built a new worship space, and they had raked seating. And I thought, like a theater, right? So there's not a bad seat in the house, because, you know, as though we were in entertainment and not the holy sacrifice. And I recall being there, uh, sitting up near the front uh, early on, the first few weeks that uh, it was open, and there's people there with a baby, and they dropped the baby bottle way in the back, and it rolled all the way up to the sanctuary, you know? Uh, it's just, it's not conducive to the worship of God. And, and you know, uh, the tabernacle so often taken out of the sanctuary and placed off to the side, or, or, or taken out of the... Uh, the sanctuary and the nave put off in a chapel someplace, that sort of thing. Um, altars traded for uh, tables. And the tables so often, I mean, the, the, the rubrics and the mass still assume that you're at an altar. It still assumes that you're facing east, by the way, because uh, at certain moments the priest is instructed to turn around and face the congregation. And how are you going to do that unless you spin 360 degrees like a figure skater, you know, if you're not, if you're not turned toward the east and not towards the congregation? And also many table altars now, they lack the things that are requisite according to the general instruction of the Roman Missal, the six candles that are supposed to be on the altar, the crucifix. There are, there are times, even during the consecration, where the priest is instructed to look up at the crucifix. And how does he do that if the crucifix is at his back? And so we've seen, you know, some uh, Churches will have a crucifix on the table altar between the people and the priest so that he can look at it, or, or they'll have it up on the wall by the choir loft so that he can raise his eyes and look at it, which is the actual instruction. And there's more. And, of course, we're going to get into that um, when we come back because the Holy Mass is fundamentally an act of worship. So we're going to talk about the importance of it being God-centered. When we return with lots more no-nonsense Catholic right after this, here Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Hi, this is Jesse Romero from the Terry and Jesse Show, also from Jesus 911. Let's face it, we all need to use the internet, but we need screen accountability. Why? Pornography is a huge problem, especially on the internet. And every time we tap into the internet, we get bombarded with images and temptations that degrade our humanity. So we need Covenant Eyes to block these pornographic sites and advertisements from infiltrating our lives. Covenant Eyes helps us take custody of our eyes and custody of our intellect. So I recommend you go to CovenantEyes.com and type in the promo code, the NPR, to support the network. Protect yourself and your family from the eminent threats on the internet. www.covenanteyes.com code VMPR live porn free. Thank you for listening to Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Thank you. God bless you. Keep the faith.
This is Terry Barber. I want to thank you for your support here at Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Here's an easy way to do it. If you're going to sell or buy a house, call Real Estate for Life, 877-543-3871, because they're going to get you a Christ-centered agent to purchase your home or to sell your home. And at the close of escrow, a portion of his commission goes right back to Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Call 877-543-3871. Thank you so much for your support. All right, so we're talking about man-centered worship and how that's really not appropriate uh, in the Catholic Church. It's not appropriate for Catholic worship because the Mass is fundamentally an act of the worship of God. You know, I remember years ago, um, (laughs) we were talking about church music and the fact that it's kind of, uh, you know, bland and banal and typically about the congregation more than it's about God and focuses on on ourselves. Uh, I remember years ago in RCIA, I had a fellow come in who had been attending the traditional mass with his family and, um, you know, coming to the RCIA, but going to mass with them. And the time came that uh, he had to attend these, you know, they have these various liturgies where you're, you know, kind of presented to the congregation and you're presented to the bishop and so on and so forth. And the first one of these he attended I realized, hey, that was his first, he'd never gone to a Novus Ordo Mise. He'd only ever experienced the traditional Mass uh, because, you know, our church has both. And I asked him afterwards, I said, you know, it's a, it's a little different. What did you think? And he says, he said, it was okay. He says, you know what, I kind of liked the 70s music. <laughs> and this is a guy with no axe to grind, somebody who can see that that these this effort to be contemporary has left us passe. And there it is. All right, but <clears throat> primarily a, a fact of worship, right? It's the, it is the action uh, and should be direct, the action should be directed to God the Father through the Son in the Holy Ghost. The priest in the person of Christ is the head of the body and we are the members of the body and we all turn together to the Father, especially at the Eucharistic prayer, the canon, the consecration when that happens, that is a prayer. It's the high point of the Mass. Where we all turn together to God the Father to offer the sacrifice, you know, the once and for all sacrifice of the cross. Pardon me. So that's why to have the priest facing the people at the Eucharistic prayer is really, it's fundamentally misleading because it gives the impression that the prayer is just being read to the people. And priests, too, by, by the, their tone of voice, by the way they make eye contact and so forth, they can uh, reinforce that impression, not simply by facing the people, but through their other actions. In fact, in the Novus Ordo Mise, the consecration is referred to as the institution narrative, as though the priest was simply telling the story of the Last Supper. And so, yeah, for, for the priest to, to say that prayer in a low voice, if that's what it is, well, you know, heaven forfend because, you know, Mrs. Brown in the last pew won't be able to hear. Or worse yet, you know, how could he possibly say it in Latin, which nobody understands? And the, all of that, of course, is beside the point when you remember that the prayer is not uh, directed to the people, it's directed to God, who, by the way, not only hears everything, but understands Latin just fine. So, so much symbolism is lost in the Nova Sorda, it would take hours to relate. But I think the one great example is the Arate Fratres, where the priest uh, extends his hand and says, pray, brethren, that uh, my sacrifice, which is also yours, will be acceptable to God the Almighty Father. The rubrics in the Nova Sorda still say that the priest turns to the people. And like I say, he either, either spins like a top or the, the missile assumes he's facing the altar. But what's going on here? When he turns to the people like that, this is, a, this is like uh, what happened in the temple in the old days. He's about to communicate with God. He's going to offer that sacrifice the way the high priest would enter the Holy of Holies once a year and enter or, or, and offer the sacrifice to God for the sins of the people. He'd go into the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant was, where the presence of God was, and nobody else could go in there. And before he went in, he would say, Orate fratres, well, he 
no doubt he didn't say it in Latin, <laughs> but, but he asked the people to pray for him, that the sacrifice would be acceptable, that God would, um, you know, uh, forgive the people their sins. And that's why, and it, you know, it was something where if God didn't accept the sacrifice, uh, the, the priest could die in there, presumably. And uh, they tell me they used to put a rope around the high priest's ankle in case, you know, because if he died in there, no one could go in and get him. And this way, at least they could drag him out. But all of this, it's, it's symbolic. That's why he says all the prayers in a low voice, because it's symbolic of the high priest entering the Holy of Holies where you could no longer see or hear him. Because he, as mediator in the Old Testament with God, and in the New Testament, the priest, as in persona Christe, who is the one mediator, is now offering the true sacrifice of the true Lamb of God, the one acceptable sacrifice to God, the Almighty Father. So none of that should be directed to us, and that's the point. Um, you know, uh, even the, the readings, yes, I don't have any problem with the readings being in the vernacular because they are for the people, but it's still a prayer. Even the creed, where we, you know, acknowledging all the great truths contained in the creed is a prayer of praise to God and the Holy Trinity. You know, liturgy is more than a Bible study or a lecture. And churches today, both Catholic and Protestant, by the way, evangelical churches, you hear their pastors complaining about this very same thing, that they seem to have lost sight of the worship of God. You know, they're, they're so busy about impressing people with their, with their preaching and their teaching or with, you know, the magnificence of the place or the giant jumbo screens or the music or whatever, that they lose sight of what it's really about. A lot of those evangelical megachurches, they'll have 20,000 people there on a Sunday. Well, prior to and presumably after all this COVID nonsense. But, uh, but it's not the same people every week. You know, it's, they don't keep people. Because people who are indulged in trendy uh, things are going to get bored. You know, if, if you try and make church an entertainment, you, you're just you're virtually guaranteeing that people are going to get bored and leave because, for, well, for one thing, the entertainment business can do entertainment a lot better than your church can. And that's, boy, that's a message to youth pastors everywhere. You know, enough of the entertainment part. Give them what only the Catholic Church can give. Make that your focus. You know, uh, that's why they have liturgy conferences every year. They got to keep changing things up to try and keep people interested. You know, uh, not only because they need to justify their existence uh, on the one hand, but also, you know, just uh, because there's no there there, as they say. So again, you know, central point of liturgy is not to impress or to entertain the congregation. It's to worship God. And does God need new formulas? Does God get bored? Does God, you know, is he tired of Gregorian chant and, and the great masterworks of Catholic music? I don't think so. All that trendy stuff, all the, the music and the, the screens and the liturgical dancing and all of that hoo-ha, none of that's for God. It's for us. And that problem is not even new in the, in, in the Catholic Church, by the way. Um, Mozart's Mass in C minor, or even his Requiem. Mass in C minor, I mean, the Alleluia, that is a, a jubilant piece of music. It is a masterpiece of orchestral and choral music. So I, I really, one of the heights of human achievement, in my opinion. But it's not really suitable for Mass. More suitable for a concert hall than it is for, for the Mass. Uh, even his Dies Irae, which is so powerful and amazing, is, it's a performance more than it is a liturgical um, prayer. So you got a number of people in all different, you know, Catholic and Protestant, who are starting to explore the value of the old way of approaching worship, you know. And for, for one thing, to, to provide a sense of authenticity and rootedness in the history and practice of the church. Now, as a former nominal Protestant, I can tell you right now, the evangelicals are not probably going to delve very far into church history because church history means Catholic history. But it is the one place, both in Catholic and Protestant um, congregations, the only place where the numbers are growing instead of declining. Same goes for its religious orders, seminaries, dioceses, individual parishes, the one thing that those that are growing have in common is the traditional approach to liturgy and to catechesis. 
And in the uh, Catholic world, that's especially the, the traditional communities, the traditional mass, orders that promote the traditional mass and sacraments are the only sector of the church that's growing rather than shrinking. And this is something that I would recommend. This is me personally, and this is not just true of uh, liturgical works or spiritual books, but uh, just, you know, books in general. I have a tendency to read old books. And the reason I do is that I want to hear from the people that built our civilization and not from the people who are tearing it down. Okay, we talked about worship now, and we talked about the feeding of the 5,000, the feeding of the 4,000, which gives us uh, this framework of Holy Communion. And this is a thing. Um, I had a dialogue not that long ago with a lady whose husband, you know, she's a Catholic woman, married to an evangelical Protestant, and that's, you know, that's its own story. And he doesn't like to go to Mass with her. He doesn't mind, you know, I mean, the songs and the preaching, all that stuff is not that foreign to him being an evangelical Christian, but... He doesn't like the fact that he's not allowed to go to communion. Why can't he go to communion with his wife? He loves Jesus. What's the big deal? You know, and that's actually kind of difficult to answer in one way because it's not a rational argument. You know, the, the teaching of the church is very clear, uh, but, but that objection, you know, is not about the, the fact that non-Catholic Christians can love Jesus, right? Communion may be synonymous with love, which is his um, contention, but, you know, love isn't reducible just to sentiment. And his whole issue seems to stem from a misunderstanding of what it means for a Catholic to receive Holy Communion, which is, you know, when you're going to have a dialogue, that's where you need to start. Because I'm, I'm sure that there are, uh, maybe you or somebody you know uh, is dealing with this issue with somebody who thinks that the Catholic Church, like the, I remember this one fellow who would say the Catholic Church is mean. The Catholic Church is stingy, uncharitable, selfish, unforgiving. And why? Because they won't let non-Catholics receive communion at their Mass. I even know a fellow who claims, uh, claimed to believe in the real presence. He says, I, I believe that Christ is present there with the bread and wine. Why shouldn't I be able to receive well, the answer to that and more is forthcoming here on No Nonsense Catholic. We're going to be back after this break. You're listening to Virgin Most Powerful Radio. I'm so glad to have you with us. Matthew Arnold here. We'll be right back in just a few seconds with more No Nonsense Catholic. Help the Helpless, a Minnesota St. Paul nonprofit organization chaired by Father of Tear and volunteers, is humbly asking you for your kind support to help the poor and the handicapped children in India and Ecuador. Through financial support from the help of the helpless benefactors, the children are provided with clothing, food, education, shelter, and the teachings of the Catholic Church. The mission is to help children thrive and become self-sufficient young adults leading productive lives. We also provide aid to poor families in Ecuador with food baskets, medicines, medical assistance, and help with funeral needs for the deceased. The work in India is done by Father Antonio's organization, St. Mary's. In Ecuador, the work is being done by the Servant Sisters of the Home of Mother. You can call us at 877-762-8857. To learn more, please visit our website, www.helpthehelpless.org. God bless you. In 1 Corinthians 13, 13, St. Paul says, So there abide faith, hope, and love, these three. According to St. Ignatius of Antioch, faith is the beginning and love is the end. And God is the two of them brought into unity. Then comes everything else that makes up a Christian. May God grant that we may attain all the virtues that make for authentic followers of His Son. 
This is Terry Barber. I want to thank you for your support here at Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Here's an easy way to do it. If you're going to sell or buy a house, call Real Estate for Life, 877-543-3871, because they're going to get you a Christ-centered agent to purchase your home or to sell your home. And at the close of escrow, a portion of his commission goes right back to Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Call 877-543-3871. Thank you so much for your support. Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic, your internet home for Keep It Simple Catholicism. We're talking about uh, the reception of communion. Why is it that the Catholic Church is so mean and stingy and... and uh, uncharitable as to deny non-Catholics communion? Or to put another way, why is it that non-Catholics can't receive communion? Why is it that you, the only person that can receive communion in the Catholic Church is a card-carrying can, uh, member of the Catholic Church? Well, when, when this question comes up, and it's something that you will encounter, I always start with what, what it means for a Catholic to receive communion. You know, at, and talking about the, the Novus Ordo Mass, uh, when the priest or the other minister of Holy Communion holds up the host and says, the body of Christ. And the communicant's response, when the communicant says, Amen, uh, that's not just an expression of belief in the real presence. Now, it is that. and But there are, you know, like I say, there are those among our separated brethren who say, but I really love Jesus, but I do believe in the real presence. But no, it's not just an expression of belief in the Christ's present communion, but of full communion with his body, which is the Catholic Church, the body of Christ, yes? That amen signifies acceptance of all the truths that the Holy Catholic Church believes and teaches because God has revealed them. You know, I mean, do evangelical Christians really believe everything that the Catholic Church teaches as being revealed by God? To ask the question is to answer it. You know, if they did, they'd be Catholics. To receive the Eucharist outside of that relationship, to receive the Catholic Eucharist outside of the Catholic Church would not be unlike enjoying the marital embrace outside of the sacrament of matrimony. You know, uh, both of those actions are intimate and physical expressions of love, but they are legitimate and holy only in their proper context. And that's why receiving the sacraments in the Catholic Church always requires instructions. That's why I teach RCIA, to help prepare people, because those who desire baptism in the Catholic Church have to first be instructed of what the Church teaches. They have to to make a public profession of their faith. Even in the case of infant baptism, the the parents, the godparents, um, have to be instructed as to their obligations. And the, the, and we make a profession of faith at the baptism, the godparents, on behalf of the child. And Catholics have to be instructed, you know, even those who are born Catholic, they have to be instructed, even if you're baptized an infant, infant, you have to be instructed before you receive your first confession, before you receive your first Holy Communion, before you receive confirmation, before you uh, enter into the sacrament of matrimony. None of these things are entered into by Catholics without instruction. You know, St. Paul says in 1 Corinthians um, 11, 27 through 29, he says that we must discern the body. When you're receiving communion, you must discern the body to avoid judgment. But also, he says, you must examine yourself before you eat and drink. Because, he says, and I quote, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord unworthily will have to answer for the body and blood of the Lord. Therefore, a Catholic who is guilty of mortal sin, who is not in a state of grace, must first receive sacramental absolution before presenting themselves for communion. Because to receive communion in a state of mortal sin would be to commit another mortal sin. Now, I've met a number of non-Catholics who claim to believe in the real presence of Christ in communion, but I have yet to meet one who claims to be without sin. But they don't seem to express any deep desire to go to confession. So despite uh, you know, all claims to the contrary, their understanding of Holy Communion is not identical to that of the Catholic doctrine. 
We talked earlier about uh, the Eucharistic discourse in John chapter 6. You know, many of his disciples, right? Not the apostles, not the 12, but his disciples, people who followed him. They said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept this? And it says they walked no more with him. You know, uh, and when he turned to the 12 and said, will you also go? They said, Master, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We're convinced that you are the Holy One of God. They didn't understand. Peter didn't understand Jesus' teaching. But he says, you know, but I accept it on the basis of your identity. I know that you're the Son of God. And then a year later, that faith was rewarded at the Last Supper when they discovered at that, at that sacred banquet, which was also the Holy Sacrifice, that the Eucharist, um, where you really truly eat his flesh and drink his blood, but under the appearance of bread and wine, that, it, that it's sacramental, all right? And that there's the one bloody sacrifice on the cross, but that becomes present, and we commune, eat his flesh and drink his blood sacramentally, really and truly, but sacramentally, and it is mysterious, but we believe it because God said so, because Jesus is the second person of the Blessed Trinity. You know, and, and before his ascension into heaven, he says, go and baptize all nations, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have taught you. Everything that the Holy Catholic Church believes and teaches. And before he ascended into heaven, he said, I'll, behold, I'll be with you all days. He was talking about his presence in the sacrament. So who has the right to determine the nuts and bolts of receiving the sacraments. Well, Jesus made Peter head of the church. And he gave him and his successors the keys to the kingdom. And by doing so, he made the popes the custodians of the deposit of faith. The faith delivered once and for all to the saints, as it says in Matthew 16. Uh, He promised Peter individually and to the apostles as a college, whatever you bind on earth is bound in heaven, whatever you loose on earth is loosed in heaven. Communion is more than just receiving the host. It means recognizing the authority of the church to govern and and distribute the sacraments. It means recognizing the Pope as the vicar of Christ. It means accepting Mary as co-redemptrix. It means accepting everything that the Catholic Church believes and teaches regarding faith and morals on the basis that those things are revealed by God. Jesus told the apostles, whoever hears you, hears me. Whoever rejects you, rejects me. Whoever rejects me, rejects the one who sent me. The question, to whom shall we go, is now properly addressed to Christ through the church. Now, this one interlocutor of mine insisted that he should be allowed to receive communion because he does believe everything the church teaches. But if that were really true, I told him, you wouldn't hesitate to come into full communion with the body of Christ, which is his holy Catholic church. So, to sum up, number one, the reception of communion is not a right. Nobody has a right to receive communion. It is a gift. Number two, the church is not withholding communion from anyone because anyone is welcome to join the church. Number three, even Catholics must be instructed before they receive Holy Communion uh, or any of the sacraments. Number four, worthy communion If one is not in a state of grace, worthy communion requires sacramental absolution in confession. Um, Because, as I said, to receive immortal sin is to commit another mortal sin. And number five, if one does not like uh, that the church claims the right and the duty to enforce these requirements then they should blame our Lord because he's the one that commanded his followers to listen to the church. Now, the first person that, that um, when I first talk, started talking that, about this, when we broached the subject in the last segment, was a lady who is Catholic who's married to an evangelical Christian. And she says, what do I do? And I said, you know, you, I told her about the, to explain what it is, what it means to a Catholic to receive communion and how, you know, that's the criterion. And, and if you really believed all these things, then you would become Catholic and it, you know, and it wouldn't bother you. And it shouldn't bother you if you're not. But, um, but there's nothing new here. And, and what I did, I told her, you know, as, as a wife, um, 
you know, you, you gently evangelize your husband primarily through your actions, primarily by showing him that, you know, what being Catholic is, does for you. And, you know, this goes to the very words of our first pope in uh, the first epistle of Peter, chapter 3, where he says um, that wives, says, be subordinate to your husbands so that even if some disobey the word, they may be won over without a word by your conduct. When they observe your reverent and chaste behavior, your adornment should be not be an external one, but rather the hidden character of the heart expressed, expressed in the imperishable beauty of a gentle and calm disposition, which is precious in the sight of God. And uh, so that's that. Now, we just have a, a minute or two left, and I don't have time to broach another topic, but lots of stuff happened since the last time I spoke with you, including the president's speech at Mount Rushmore and uh, a lot of other hoo-ha in the, in the secular world. One wonderful thing that happened, we got uh, the news just today, and I'm sure that you've been hearing about it all day, is that uh, the Supreme Court ruled in favor of the Little Sisters of the Poor regarding the, you know, the religious um, exemption for providing contraception under the Health and Human Services mandate. So amen to that, and uh, you know, glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. And uh, uh, congratulations to the Little Sisters of the Poor for their fidelity and their courage for sticking it out and sticking up for what we as Catholics all believe. They are a, uh, an example for all of us to follow that they, uh, they did it the right way and they stuck to their guns and they've won. One small victory, um, dampened somewhat. I heard about uh, Norma McCorvey, who you might know as uh, Jane Roe, the anonymous plaintiff in the Roe versus Wade case, that speaking of the Supreme Court that made abortion the law of the land, has uh, participated. She's uh, no longer with us, um, but she participated in a documentary that has just come out or is just about to come out, I don't remember, but um, where she claims that she never really converted to, to Christianity, she never really uh, stopped believing in abortion and so forth. Uh, and and a, a, so a sad note amidst the, the happy jubilation. But um, I met Norman Corby personally, and I know that she was a, a deeply troubled individual and that she had her own issues. And so to close, I'd like to say a little prayer for her soul, eternal rest grant to her, O Lord, let perpetual light shine upon her, and may her soul and the soul of all the faithful departed, through the mercy of God, rest in peace. Amen. Because we always hold out hope, my good friends, always until the very end, until the last day. And that's the uh, whole point of Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Things aren't as bad as they seem. I've read the end of the book, and uh, I got news for you. We win it. So congratulations in advance. Uh, don't forget that... Uh, we're here for you guys. I will be back next week with another edition of No Nonsense Catholic. In the meantime, take care of yourselves, be careful out there, and may God richly bless you and your family. Thanks for listening to No Nonsense Catholic here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. We can't do it without you. Until next week, so long. In the 1990s, I lived and worked in Hollywood. But when my wife Betty's mom took ill, we relocated to Orange County. And it was during this time in our lives that I converted to Catholicism. Once my eyes were opened to the truth, I couldn't learn enough about the faith. But I had less free time than ever, especially with a long commute. That's when I discovered the real value of Catholic audio. Listening to cassette tapes transformed my daily commute into a miniature retreat. And that's the beauty of Virgin Most Powerful Radio today. Since the podcasts are archived, you can listen anytime on our smartphone app. I know how listening to Catholic audio can bring you closer to Christ and His Church. So I encourage you to visit the App Store or go to vmpr.org and download the app today. It just might change your life. I'm Matthew Arnold for Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Virgin Most Powerful Radio, sharing the gospel with clarity and charity.